Welcome to Graphic Policy Radio. This is your host, Ilana Levin, also known as Ilana Brooklyn. This is the comics podcast for folks who have lots of theories about which CEOs have been members of the Hellfire Club. Uh, joining me tonight is one of my favorite X-Men writers who's starting to make her way through the X-Universe. Um, it is Leah Williams. She is an American writer originally from Oxford, Mississippi. She writes comics for Marvel, Boom Studios, Dynamite Entertainment, and more. Her debut novel was a young adult fantasy book titled The Alchemy of Being 14, and she's currently writing its sequel, The Divinity of Hitting 15. Leah has also written nonfiction articles and essays for The Atlantic, Oprah Magazine, and Salon. Welcome to the show, Leah. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to finally um, get to talk with you and hang out. Yeah, I feel like I, I definitely first met you at FlameCon, the LGBTQ Comics Con that is the best con in the history of cons. It's amazing. Um, and you were on a panel, and I feel like it was right before you had any comics out, but that it had been announced that you were going to have stuff out. Yeah, so that was right before kind of my official marvel debut happened um which was i had two issues come out on halloween um 2018 on october 31st and Mm -hmm. these were the first full issues that i wrote as kind of a solo flight writer because i wrote a full issue co-wrote it with mark guggenheim um the excalibur reunion and that was how i began 2018 that was um the first full issue i had come out with marvel and then october 2018 is when i had the first full issues that i wrote um on my own as the only writer with the main story and that was super super exciting yeah i just i you know i know you've done stuff that wasn't x-men related and i've read the deja thoris uh, Barbarella crossover series that you're launching, and I'm excited to talk about that for sure. But I just associate you with X Men in my head still now. Um. It's like it, it's something I talk about online too. Like it's, um, I just think in terms of X Men tweets. You know, it's it's a mm-hmm. brain process that I have where I'm sort of constantly running simulations of dialogue and you know, just imagining these characters. And most of the time it's not appropriate content for me to pitch. Like it's not good enough. It's just these little moments I don't have a home for and probably, you know, wouldn't make it past the the Disney censors, I think. Um, <laughs> but I also keep my best stuff for, uh, you know, the, the genuine pitches and anything else anything that like isn't isn't good enough to pitch isn't strong enough i'm like yeah i can tweet that it's it's fine <laughs> that's interesting i think about that a lot like what you know creators are cuz some creators really do not talk about their work at all because they're concerned about uh being seen as like having ideas coming from other places maybe or uh you know lots yeah. of concerns with that i don't have that concern i mean for me it's mostly just like i'm releasing content into the wild that i know is never going to show up in something i pitch like that's a decision i make beforehand Mm -hmm. and um it, it it's just it's also stuff that can't go into the comics like i don't have room for it or something like that like one that i almost tweeted just before 
I, I hopped on this call with you. I was thinking about North Star and Iceman because I'm writing them both in extremists. And for me, it's kind of like a lens that I wear. Um, so I'll start to view things that I'm reading and just look at the world around me through these character interactions and just sort of compile all of these moments in, into one cohesive narrative. And it depends on, you know, whatever I'm working on at the time. And that changes a couple times in a week. I have to pivot to different projects. So I was just imagining this scenario that I would never be able to put in a comic because it's vulgar <laughs> and um, it's just, it just doesn't fit extremists where North star is just kind of flippantly like, Oh, Bobby go wait, can I cuss on this podcast? Oh yes, please cuss okay. as much as you'd like. <laughs> okay. Um, where uh, North star is just like, Oh my God, go fuck yourself. And then Bobby is just like, fuck me yourself. You coward. <laughs> Oh my gosh! I, you know, I have to say, I, I hadn't I hadn't thought about who the team was for extremists. So you're going to be writing two of the X Men's like most prominent canonical gay characters. Yeah, basically. and one of the um, less prominent but also canonically queer characters is Psylocke. She's bi. Yes, she is. I'm so happy you're on that book because I know you know, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, this isn't going to be the book where, just because of the nature of extremists, you know, like f love is forbidden. Um, it, it's not going to be the book where we get to see Betsy um, again with a woman and that kind of thing. But it's because we don't get to see any of that and there's a reason for it. So the fact that I, I'm like... I feel like I'm protectively hoarding all the queer characters in, in this book that I've gotten because the challenge of telling a queer story without being able to use love and romance um, as like a shorthand, a visual shorthand for mm -hmm. queerness is a really interesting challenge, but there's no way I would ever tackle this without confronting it head on and being like, okay, we got to do this right. It needs to be authentic and it needs to be honest, even if like, you know, it's in the solicit text, um, love is the greatest enemy. Like it's, it's a challenge, but it's, it's, it's going to end up being something really, I think, strange and special once it does happen. So yeah, I'm fascinated. I actually hadn't heard the solicit text. Um, what's the premise of the series? Um, basically, the extremists are kind of like a shock force troops to um, Marvelous X-Men, which is being written by um, Zach Thompson and Lonnie Nadler. They've got like the main X-Men book and the extremists, what I'm writing, they're, they're like the wet works team. They're the ones actually doing the dirty work that goes behind maintaining a utopia and it's it's dark and it's um it gets pretty grim but at the same time we've got all these characters that are their personalities are so bright and so recognizable like bobby and mm -hmm. um betsy and jean paul and jubilee and they're working together they're on the same team so we get to familiar familiarize ourselves with them first before 
we see what they're doing and it's like, oh, oh my God. (laughs) And there's Mm. a reason for everything. And I keep telling people like, I know when you read the solicit text, it's, and you see the cover and like the title, it's extremist. It's going to be scary, but like, if you have questions, I will answer them as much as I can going into this. And I promise once you, you know, read it and, and you start seeing what's going on, it'll, it'll make a lot more sense because I know like forbidden love, having the forbidden love book, um, could be bewildering when I do have, um, especially John Paul and Bobby on the same team. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's no way I would do anything disingenuous or dishonest to their characters. Well, it's definitely the sort of thing where I'm like, I'm really thankful that you're on it because it's not something I would trust heterosexual people to write, basically. It's, <laughs> that's kind of how I feel about it, too. Like, when I'm working on it, I'm like, oh, God, I'm so happy I'm the one writing this because I can see all of the ways where it, it, it could be so easily the queerness could be so easily glossed over just because of the nature of the book which was the premise of it that I knew going into it you know Mm. it's um this book is is part and parcel with uh this part of the story because it's the angle of this event that we're getting in extremists and all of the different books have different angles and it's all you know coming together to produce something really interesting but the fact that I'm the one on this book and I can like kind of plant a flag and be like, okay, so, you know, we're, we're going to go this route and, and we're not going to ignore the opportunities to, you know, bring up sexuality. Um, even if we have to go through some hurdles to, to do it authentically, like we're, we're definitely going to take, the harder route because it would be so easy just to, you know, gloss over it all in, in a, a world where love is the enemy to, to not do anything authentically with the characters and their queerness. But I think because I, I am not straight, I'm able to see, um, the different routes that can be taken. And I'm very thankful that, that I'm on this. Awesome. Yeah, that's, that's exciting. And it's a cool team to have there. The cover looked exciting. And I I have not kept up with like what's happening in the main X books. You know, I I read the, uh, the X-Men annual that you, that was the, that was the, um, the reunion of Excalibur that you and Mark wrote. That was really quite charming and lovely. That was such a joy. Yeah. Excalibur is my favorite, um, comic series of all time. Uh, uh, the original Excalibur with Alan Davis and Chris Claremont working on it is just um, such a joy for me. Had you worked, ha, like, how did you connect with uh, with Mark to work on it? It, I was actually, okay, so he was working on X-Men Gold at the time, and he kept getting approached by fans about, um, you know, you've got, Kitty and Kurt and Rachel all in the same book again, like we would really love to see an Excalibur reunion. And because, you know, the X-Men titles are planned out like, oh my gosh, you know, (laughs) eight months in advance, there's no way he could rearrange everything that had been set into emotion just to um, 
accommodate that, but he was like, okay, well, this would be perfect for an annual. And he approached Chris Robinson. He was like, I, you know, think this would be good, a good opportunity to not only do that, but to co-write it with somebody. Here's the plot I'm thinking about that we can kind of have them springboard off of. Do you have any ideas? And then Chris was like, yeah. <laughs> and he suggested me, um, cause I am such a huge fan and, you know, this would be a good way for me to work with a more senior writer and kind of see how things are done beyond just backup shorts, which is what I had been doing before this. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was just an invaluable opportunity because of that alone. And also because of what we were writing, like it's still, you know, it is so fulfilling that I was able to work on that. Yeah, it was really charming. I, who So then who got to do that redesign of Brian with like the update hair and beard, which I was like, ah, yes, excellent choice. Someone's paying attention I, to fashion. I think that was actually um, Aletha Martinez's choice. So God I got her. to work. She's so good. She's so good. And when I found out that she was working on this, that was another thing that was like, ah, because World of Wakanda, her work on that was just gorgeous absolutely gorgeous so i was really excited to work with her and she um gave brian this like beautiful hipster dad makeover and i'm so into it and i actually requested it i used it as a reference material when i wrote you know the one page braddock family reunion in the x-men holiday special that just came out um because it's it's so charming the way she drew everybody. Yeah, yeah. She's really one of those artists who I just don't think people recognize how how much of their her work they have seen. Oh, absolutely. And how amazing her designs are. Um, yeah. And she's uh, so amazing in person, too. She's like the... She's a ray of sunshine embodied. She's just so charming and lovely. She's all around awesome yeah well that's i was really happy to see that combination of people and then i guess we know the other annual that you worked on was the domino annual which i really enjoyed um gail is just one of my favorites in superhero comics and um like all time for real and uh it was cool to see you collaborating on that like how does it work contributing a story to an annual where she has a lot of different contributors sort of doing pieces like how, how does that all work So the way it worked in this is um, Chris Robinson orchestrated the whole thing and I give him so much credit for it. I've done like really lengthy Twitter threads on the work that um, Chris Robinson did as an editor on the Domino Annual because I could see it from afar. And since I was the one doing the interstitial pages, I was the only one who got to read all of the different scripts um, beforehand, so I would Mm. know how to link them together into one kind of cohesive narrative. So I was able to see, like, what Chris had done and the stories he had gotten from different people and the way they would land next to each other. And it wasn't something that, as writers, we knew we were doing when we um, wrote these different stories. And... He basically orchestrated a really potent distillation of the character Domino, and he started it with Gail Simone's story with Domino, and it's one that 
helps people like get into the current series, the ongoing mm-hmm. that Gail's working on, you know, starting with the familiar voice. So not only does it bring in the newer readers to Domino, but um, people who have already been reading the Domino series and, and they, you know, recognize Gail's work with her more. Um, and then we had uh, Dennis Hopeless's story and we had stuff that kind of took place on the periphery. It was just really amazing. And I absolutely credit Chris Robinson with what made that annual feel so good. So who came up with the uh, support group for non-passing mutants? That was mine. That was something that I had been talking to Chris about for a while. And it started out as a joke, just like, um, so I really earnestly love the ugly mutants. I, I have a very soft spot in my heart for them because to me... They're what makes X-Men comics so special. The fact that Mm -hmm. here we have these creatures that in a different body of work, in a different genre, would be considered something monstrous. Their mutant ability would be like, you know, maggot and husk and marrow. It would be what disfigures them in in a different work. But because this is X-Men comics, it's what empowers them. Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, I... I roll hard for the for the Uggos on on any team, any X-Men iteration, just because they deserve the best and they deserve to be protected um, for being heroes and not being conventionally mm-hmm. hot. So, you know, like I talked to him about that before and then we were just kind of tossing ideas back and forth and we we both arrived at, you know, like a, a support group for this kind of thing um and you know maybe even dupe would be there um even though he's not a mutant he still looks like a thick booger (laughs) um yeah i like i mean what i really loved with that one is like this is an actual thing that comics need to talk about like mutants passing and mutants not passing and have it do and do a, a good job with it but, and I loved also how I actually wasn't sure which character it was, but there was a character who is saying he's complaining about being fetishized, right? So it's like, on the one hand, you can be, um, you have, you're socially ostracized and people are always looking at you because you look mm-hmm. very different. But then sometimes it's like the attention that you are getting that's positive attention on one level is actually still objectifying you because it's sort of like fetishizing you. Yeah. Um, so the character that you're talking about who first brought that up and then Toad agreed with him um, is Kai Loon, and he looks like he has leonine features. He looks kind of lion-esque, um, but his coloring, his skin and hair, it looks like an old bruise. So it's purple and orange. Um, and I I love him. He's great. He's a great character, also from Excalibur. Mm, and uh he is bringing up furry art basically and i kind of took a leap of faith with having toad agree with him and be like yeah man i know how you feel because while i had not seen um the toad art at that point the ns and not safe for work stuff nsfw Mm -hmm. um toad fan art i i just took a leap of faith and assumed that it existed and when right because 
the internet, everything exists. Exactly. And then sure enough, when that story was published in the Domino Annual, Toad's fans came forward and they're like, ha yeah, it's the tongue. And they showed me the wow. fan art. So it, it wow. was... It was honestly very sweet and very touching that Toad's fans were just so happy to see him get some positive um, screen time, you know, not not just be be villainized, even though he he is a villain. <laughs> so what was interesting, what was interesting to me also uh, talking about like you ha- the fan art thing is mm, you're, you're talking about fictional characters, right? So, you know, on the one hand, we can sort of have this like belief like, You know, I don't like, like, people shouldn't be judging other people for, like, their quirky sexual desires, proclivities, or fixations. Like, go with God, do your thing. I'm not going to give somebody grief because they like to make erotic art about Toad. But then the comic, it's like, well, it's actually real people who are being, like, seeing, so I, who who are seeing the art. And you're like, it does feel intrusive to have that art being made of you if you're actually a real person as these characters are within the world of the comic that's definitely how i feel about the the real life fan fiction that some people write about you know like the one direction guys or something like that it does or writing about celebrities um yeah it, it does feel super strange and i say this as someone so i I have a deep history with fan fiction. It it goes back many, many years to when I was just a wee thing. And my very first encounter with fan fiction was um, somebody's like self-insert Mary Sue and all the Hanson brothers, like each of them. Um, (laughs) So, I mean, I didn't know it was weird at the time. I was just like, wow, I'm five. This is great. Um, but it it does it it does feel like something strange now a strange phenomenon of of the modern mm-hmm. era yeah it's you know like the little lines about between like fictional and real people like are pretty it's pretty clear to us out here but um i sort of i was interesting to it was interesting to me in terms of the uh the, the narrative is like oh yes because in the comic these are real people and that would be really fucked up <laughs> and i just imagined um, you know like if if you are I, a, a lot of the work i do in the x-men is is grounded in trying to both sympathize and empathize with their view and what they're going through and try and making mm-hmm. it authentic so i'm imagining these characters like some of which look like a green potato and and some kind of look strange but are still conventionally hot like domino and some right. that aren't conventionally hot but definitely satisfy an existing fetish um and that like if if there are furries in in earth 616 the main marvel universe and i'm sure there are then they would look at some of these mutants like hank mccoy and be like yes please and they might get a little weird about it yeah you don't want to be fetishized. You don't want to be yeah, some, exactly. like, just because of physical characteristics and not treated like a full human being. So. Yeah. Well, speaking of also just like talking about X-Men, I I loved your magic, what if magic comic so much. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I was really sold on that. I, um, I, I listened to a podcast called uh, Tighten Up the Defense where... Um, they are going through 
every single issue of the defenders from like the 70s and 80s uh, as well as every issue of teen titans and discussing them um but as a result i have heard a lot of jokes and insights about dr strange <laughs> that are informed by people who have done a great deal amount of reading dr strange so it was a lot of fun for me sort of seeing like they, they, they have they have a reoccurring joke they refer to um the sanctum sanctorum as dr strange's sanctum sanctimonium yeah. And, and uh, so sort of seeing Dr. Strange sort of jump in, assume he knows what's going on when he encounters magic and assert his authority because he's like, I'm a doctor, as if that means that he's trustworthy and that she should listen to him. And her being a young girl who's been exploited and abused her whole life and being like, no, you being an authority figure does not mean I should listen to you or trust you. Yes. It was such yes. a great read. Um, that was something... So like I was saying earlier about extremists and seeing, um, you know, the, the queerness in it, the, the things that needed to be authentic. It's, it's the very same thing with what if magic, where the whole time I was writing it, I was looking at it like, okay, no. And then this, and then this, because just the situation that we were proposing you know what if magic becomes sorcerer supreme uh the very first thing that both my editor Annalise Bisa and I Bisa and I landed on was um you know we start from her getting out of limbo and then we just tell the truth and we just like authentically uh deliver this story where Dr. Strange in all his like ignorance about teen girls and and what's going on with her would just be like after she finishes saying that she was kind of abused for years and years under the guise of a sorcery apprenticeship he listens to all that and he's just gonna be like Ileana I'm gonna offer you a sorcery apprenticeship like of course yeah. <laughs> she would get mad at that of course she would immediately she would fly down the hall in a rage and try and get out of there but to his credit that's also like Doctor Strange is smart enough to be like when she calls him out on it, he's like, Oh, you're right. I didn't think about that and and present the exit to her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just appreciate I thought the whole issue just did such a great job of talking about, you know, a, a teen girl dealing with resolving abuse and trauma and surviving it and It was a very raw thing for me to write. Like there are panels in that that just shipwreck me emotionally um but I also knew the whole time like this is going to be something special once once we come out on the other side of it because you know I had seen art coming in from Philippe Andrade and just the way my editor and I had been talking about it, like sort of in cahoots the whole time down to every single last detail, like the cloak and why she makes a staff instead of a sword. And um, the, the panel where we see her as a little girl, that one panel um, we, we got very specific on that where um I was like, it's important to me that we keep the perspective the same and not punch in on a close-up because then people might not understand like they that she's a little girl here. Um, so we, we need to show how small she is and 
put her in an oversized t-shirt because that's that's what's gonna land um mm-hmm. I, I i could feel it uh just i don't know i feel like so many of us grew up wearing oversized t-shirts as nightgowns yeah i mean and you just really convey how her whole relation her whole experience in limbo was like grooming basically it's like a metaphor for for grooming it is yeah about that in the context of the surviving r kelly you know uh documentary series which is just concluding now um it feels really timely and it's also something that i knowing you're being groomed is is not often a conscious um realization it's usually Mm -hmm. something that comes with hindsight when you're looking back on your past experiences so Ileana in what if magic she knows she has gotten to the point where um she knows that she has been groomed for over half her life by an abusive sorcerer um and she knows why he's losing interest in her as she gets older and his uh, games with her, his training is becoming more and more brutal. Um, it, it's something that she's aware of. So when she finally is able to free herself from Limbo because of her teleportation powers, um, God, she's angry. She's so angry. And the first thing that happens when she comes out of Limbo is she tries to go home to her parents. But of course, only a couple minutes has passed on Earth. So her parents don't recognize her and they chase her away from the family farm with a shotgun. So it goes from, you know, like finally escaping and wanting to go home to being chased away at gunpoint by her parents who don't recognize her because she's been in hell for seven years to um, hitchhiking and wandering to Dr. Strange. So she's feral. She really is feral. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it was super powerful. Um, as as was the the Emma comic. I just told a friend of mine like this is the best Emma comic I've read in a lifetime. So like, oh, thank for you. Real. That yeah, was another so one you, that was raw for me. <laughs> you, yep, you got to do Emma Frost uh, and Art Chris Bacalo, Chris, bleh, Chris Bacalo, which like for a whole generation of comics readers, he's like a super iconic. Creator. Oh, absolutely. Um, so yeah, how did you work on that with him? He was super fun to work with. Um, he is very collaborative and has lots of questions. And um, there was so much in that script where I deliberately was sort of like giving him room to be Chris Bacalo. Like, you know, so on this page, here's what needs to happen. But I wasn't providing the specifics because, you know it's Chris, like, just, just let him be Chris, let him do his thing. And when I found out that he was going to be working on it with me, I like the way this conversation went down exactly was Jordan, you know, just kind of casually texted me. He's like, Oh, Hey, I think I have a line on an artist. So I replied back with a bunch of eyes emojis. And then he after a moment was like, okay, are you sitting down? And I was, (laughs) but then when he told me that it was Chris, I burst into tears and had to go lay down because, you know, his, his work 
even with Emma and Generation X, like it's so formative for me. And later in Uncanny, um, when Bendis was writing, it, it's it's huge for me. It just occupies so much of my my X Men heart. Um, and I couldn't believe that this was real. And the script immediately, because I think this was just in the outlining stage when I found this out. But once I I learned who was going to be on art, the script immediately started to come alive in my mind because I could just see it. I, I could see the whole thing in, in Chris's artistic voice. Um, and it made it that much more meaningful for me to write. Mm-hmm. Whew. I, I, uh, the humor was really sharp. Um, and, the uh the turnaround that happened i i, I realized i like i haven't decided if like i want to spoiler it or not i mean it's been out for a long time right when did it come out it came out on halloween so that and the what if yeah. magic were my like official kind of marvel debuts okay so we're just gonna say folks if you haven't picked up the emma frost black individual comic yet do it right now and then come back and listen to the rest of this it's fabulous it's a small little purchase just go do it um okay so like when it turned when the reveal like that she's been how she literally played every single person happens i was just so gleeful because that's such a great understanding of the character (laughs) um but i did get such a great like laugh out of rogue forcing her to meet her in a walmart good god i yeah that was one thing that when i first pitched it um felt super goofy and I was like oh they're not gonna let me do this (laughs) and then Jordan's just like yeah that's great (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah yeah that's it felt like a great way to fuck with her basically (laughs) so I mean is Emma's the black king now she is yeah how is that is that like going to be the 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 the, uh, going going forward status quo in in Mm -hmm. comics for a while. That's really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. That was hugely exciting for me to learn that it would, you know, not immediately get retconned because it's something that I've been like, even before I was a Marvel writer, uh, Emma Frost's hostile takeover of the Hellfire Club and um, becoming Black King, like elevating Emma to the status of Magneto, making her the Black King was you know, literally something that I daydreamed about. And um, before I ever knew I would end up actually writing for Marvel, this is just a a fantasy. So being able to do it and then have it be treated as the current status quo, um, it's how she's being written in Jessica Jones, it's how she's being written in Iceman, it's how she's being written in Uncanny X-Men as the Black King. And it's just incredible to me that it's real yeah that's really it's a big landmark and i like the description definitely her like like the story just terms of like she's going up the tower she's going up the ranks she's and 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 her relationship with the the woman who she had on the inside is like it's there's a lot of layers of meaning in it that i I hope people go back and and give it a, a, a multiple times of a read yeah, I, I hope so, too. I hope they don't... Because there are some people who reacted to it like, okay, well, we trust you with her, but we don't trust her being part of the 
Hellfire Club because, you know, we've been burned before and people have, like, villainized her when we don't see her as a villain. But um, I don't see her as a villain at all. I see her as an anti-hero and somebody who is incredibly compelling and nuanced um, and just very, very complicated. And the kind of complicated that comes from sort of a patchwork quilt over the years of the different ways that she's been portrayed. Um, Because once you put it all together, which was very much what I was trying to do, trying to reconcile all of these aspects, because I see her that way. I see her as this immensely complicated figure. Um, uh, Being able to put everything together in X-Men Black was always one of my goals from the start and make it complicated and nuanced and have her be ruthless, but at the same time show tenderness, (laughs) a spot of tenderness towards the woman she had on the inside um, to to show these sides of her all at once, mm-hmm. all at the same time. And anytime a woman gets to beat the shit out of Sebastian Shaw is great, but anytime where Emma beats the shit out of Sebastian Shaw is truly a great day in college. Oh my God. It was really cathartic to write that. So I have no emotional distance from Emma. She's um, my favorite character and and i used to have a hard time saying who my favorite character was but then Mm. i wrote x-men black emma frost and was terrified the whole time because i felt like i was careening you know and i was like oh no okay so i'm I'm like fangirling out and this is scary for me because i feel like i have no control over this um but the scene where she's just knocking the shit out of sebastian shaw um i even tried to give him some moments humanizing moments in that too um it was really cathartic to write that because at the time i was writing it it was when all of the news about the child detainment camps was first starting to break um Mm -hmm. and reading about that while writing this character who is famously protective of children and children especially and was abused as a child and is like beating the shit out of this rich abuser um who you know is someone who would have who's like invested in the corporations that are profiting off of the detention camps exactly i'm like i'm like i I have like i have a list on um backersofhate.com from my old job have a whole website about all the companies that are profiteering off of like the actual like prison camps and concentration camps of children at the border. Anyway, um, so yeah, like he's totally like he, this brings it back together with my opening, my opening line. But yeah, like he's like he's like on the board, he's on the board and, and invested in all those companies. So yeah, exactly. So that that was amazing to write during that time, and mm-hmm. it um. I sobbed when I was writing the last page of it just because, you know, this is something I've always dreamt about happening with this character. And I was the one chosen to uh, write her. I was allowed to pitch this. I was able to write exactly what I wanted to write. And then in the end, have her address grief in a way that I've 
always, you know, been desperate to see from her and her especially. It, it was just amazing for me. Mm. Thank you. Well, uh, coming out on Wednesday this week, uh, we have, or I guess whatever, I'm not exactly sure when this is going to be out, but coming out like very, very shortly or perhaps already, uh, you wrote a comic for, you're doing a series for Dynamite um, that is Deja Thoris and Barbarella crossover series. Mm Mm-hmm. I have been lucky enough to read a preview copy. I enjoyed it greatly. Um, I, I don't know if I've ever read much of an American, um, like, contemporary Barbarella, you know? I mean, for me, I always thought... I, I first found the character through the 60, through the movie, you know? Mm-hmm. I think it's probably true for a lot of us in the States. Oh, same, um, yeah. Yeah. So that was a lot of fun. Um yeah, how, how 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 did you get attached to that book, and, and what what's your interest in these particular characters? So it was something that um, Matt Idelson, my editor, approached me about because you know they had arranged with the licensing people with either property for this crossover to happen, I think, but um, I and and he asked me if if I would write it and I don't even know if I was the first choice for it um but I do know that as soon as their names were you know brought up together in the same sentence at the same time I immediately saw the possibilities for it because um you know Barbarella she was introduced in the 60s um you know as as she was meant to be counterculture. She was a character who was very sexually liberated. And this was part of, um, you know, the sexual liberation for women in the sixties and had a lot of revolutionary meaning, um, then. And since time, the what's revolutionary about her has kind of changed. And then we have Jane Fonda playing Barbarella in the movie. So it's, it's gotten a little, um, it's grown so much over the years. And now she's like this. Um, I, I mean, I'm writing her as a pansexual blonde space. James Bond is what I tell people. It's she's very much like Dr. Who where mm. like she's so smart and she knows how to solve problems and she doesn't need help. She doesn't rely on people um, and is just altruistic she she helps because it's the right thing to do and she's not getting you know financial compensation for it or glory and people don't often know that it's her sort of arranging all of these situations um she's motivated to do what's right because it's right because she's a good person and then we have Deja Thoris who was a character invented by Edgar Rice Burroughs over a hundred years ago or almost 100 years ago maybe um yeah 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 like john card and the prince of mars and for about a hundred years she was just the ingenue the the damsel in distress who got kidnapped and um uh held hostage and she always needed help she always needed saving and it wasn't until later years that deja started to get um you know, more of her own agency and autonomy and solve problems on her own and 
like get her own spotlight. Um, and a lot of that did happen with Dynamite Entertainment and their comics. Mm-hmm. Um, Amy Chu is the one writing uh, Deja Thoris's ongoing series right now, which is where I got a lot of inspiration. Oh, and cool. Amy's great. Amy's great. Yeah, yeah, Amy's fantastic. Um, so, like, this is what I had in mind when, you know, they brought up a Barbarella and Deja Thoris crossover miniseries. And I know, and I also knew from the start that people would look at this and be like, okay, this is an excuse to have two, um, like, hot licensed property babes star together and pretty much nothing else. And maybe it is. Maybe that was <laughs> the reasoning for it. Who knows? Um, but the fact that I'm the one writing it, mm-hmm. I am having a blast it is hard sci-fi with hot babes and the amount of scientific research i've done for this because everything they're talking about um every weird bit of science and sci-fi like quantum physics it is all grounded in actual science and actual research and um it's so much fun hmm yeah, yeah. The uh, the the art work is also just like really vivid and trippy. Oh my gosh! And... Yeah. So Herman Garcia is doing the art, and he is incredible. He is just schooling me um, in terms of like the dynamism and kinetics, and I'm learning so much from him on uh, just the positioning of these shots and that kind of thing. Cool. Yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed them. And they do have, the camera characters do have really fun chemistry together. One of the things I noticed is the moment where um, Barbarella starts flirting with Deja Thoris. She's not making eye contact with the metal pasties. She's making eye contact with the sword that got drawn yeah. on her. Uh, yeah, and that I, was something that I scripted too, because I was just yay. like, I, um, I asked permission it, like if I could make this gay because you know I I'm never sure like I always want things to be gayer but I don't know mm-hmm. what's allowed or what's not with licensed properties so I sort of like made my case for it and I mean certainly he, Barbarella she's like probably having well, exactly completely drawn for the eyes of heterosexual men but nevertheless sex with other women in she's canonically pansexual period. and yeah, you know yeah. in in the current um ongoing barbarella series at dynamite written by mike carey she hooks up with a woman first um and it's it's not male gazy in the way that it's done it's actually handmaiden's tale in the way that it's done um mm. so it, it's 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 good and Mike Carey is a good guy, so yeah, that's interesting. He's yeah, he's he's a good one too. Um, and uh, so I brought that up, but you know we haven't seen Deja with a woman yet, so that's what I wasn't sure about. And of course, Matt was just like, "Oh yeah, sure," <laughs> which I think is so funny because every time I've like cautiously or or timidly approached any editor that I've worked with at, at Marvel or at Dynamite and been like, is it, is it okay to, to make it gay? Like, can, can I do this please? <laughs> and, and I'm like so scared about the consequences. And they're always just like, oh yeah, sure. Go for it. <laughs> um, 
so God bless Matt Edelson is, is the point here. And, um, I, this was another one of those opportunities that I could see at a distance, like the friends to, or, or enemies to reluctant allies, to friends, to lovers thing. Um, because I know Barbarella would, would just take one look at Deja Thoris, even mm-hmm. if it's from the point of a sword and be like, well, hi, <laughs> you know? Totally. Yeah. I thought that was really fun. It's interesting because, like, there's so much ridiculously hot pinup-y art of Dejah Thoris. Like, it just exists. There's also lots of really bad, because lots of artists have drawn her, and artists can sometimes do a bad job. Um, I'm like, but, yeah. um, so I was really intrigued to sort of to see how she would get drawn and characterized in the story. And it's not a, it's not a character that I really know anything about, but um, I, I always sort of... It, I was always sort of impressed by the balls of Edgar Rice Burroughs inventing her from being a culture <laughs> where like, well, they don't really wear clothes. Yeah. They just wear jewelry. <laughs> and so then the workaround is like, okay, so they don't wear clothes, they wear jewelry, but we can't show certain things because we're publishing this in the age of pulps. So the jewelry they're wearing is metal pasties. Problem solved. Like, yeah. okay, you guys are you guys are brilliant. Keep it up. But like then you I have to say, like, are there do men wear metal pasties? Like what what you know, like what how how does what is the clothing convention? for for people of the Marsian Marsian persuasion they should i mean if they aren't wearing metal pasties they should be wearing metal pasties and and what are the merkins metal merkins like metal um, mer- it's like a yeah because yeah that's what the canon is that they don't wear clothes they don't have shame about their bodies so in the books you know they're just naked they wear some jewelry but in any visual representation, they're just scantily clad with all of the, like, off-limits Western bits covered with something. Yeah, yeah. But if they really wanted to commit to the metal pasties, then they would make men wear metal pasties, too. Because, to me, that would make more sense than just the women. Thank you. I, I, I feel like we understand each other very well. well I, I really did enjoy the first issue. And yeah, you're right. It's like hard sci-fi. And it was interesting sort of seeing, I really had no, I literally had no direction, idea where any of it would be going. And, and I was really pleased with it. So congratulations on Thank that. You. Yeah. Yeah. Bar- Barbarella was, I believe, the first like erotic comic by a mainstream publisher. I mean, in, you know, Europe. But like, mm-hmm. nevertheless, um, mm-hmm. that everything else has sort of been underground, self-published comics until that one. So yeah, treading into some historic, historic ground. That's great. Meanwhile, you've also done comics for Boom, like Choose mm-hmm. Goose. And um, <laughs> yeah. so, yeah, how do you how do you get to wear all, both of those hats? Um, I, I don't really no it it started with marvel um and i think that is what opened other doors for me because it gave me this layer of visibility that i had never had before um and even though i had only written a short um i got approached by boom studios who like they often reach out to to younger and and newer talent um and about that they they asked me about um 
a few different properties and and one that is really close to my heart is Adventure Time and I was really excited about that immediately. I love Adventure Time. Yeah. I cried so much at the end. Good God. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I was so happy about Marceline and Bubblegum kissing was like the most edifying thing. Yeah. Yeah. I um, I feel very, very tender about that. Very, it's just, it's so sweet and fans waited for it for so long. Can you um, imagine if that had been out when we were kids, like how much better the world would have been? I think about that all the time, actually. Yeah. I, I yeah. mean, it's part of the reason why I, I know representation doesn't seem like a big deal to a lot of people, but it's a big deal to me because I grew up in a place where I didn't know that um, you you could be something other than gay or straight, and for the longest time, and I, you know, experience opposite sex attraction. I, I mostly experience same sex attraction, but I experience opposite sex attraction enough to know that it's inappropriate for me to identify as a lesbian. You know what I mean? So for the longest time, I thought I was just something monstrous. Um, and it wasn't until like years and years later, I was an adult just sort of like scrolling on Tumblr and I saw kids, um, talking about their own experiences with this and I was just like oh okay and it sort of like brought into sharp relief how you know oh straight girls don't do that okay no no straight girls definitely don't have relationships with other girls I don't know why I thought I was straight for the longest time um and and it makes me wish that I had had other canonically queer role models to to look to as a kid because while the ex ladies were fundamental in my queer <laughs> feelings and my queer yeah. development i didn't know that that's what was happening and i wish i had right 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 I mean, that's one of the things I have. A, I have an essay I need to place, and I'll just I'll I'll put a pin in it and say I have an essay coming out about these things later. But um, but yeah. So but so I think it's so yeah. So Adventure Time is everything in the kids these days. I'm very excited for them being able to have these things. But but yeah. So you got to write an Adventure Time comic, and that's really freaking cool. Yeah, yeah. It was super exciting, and again, it was one of those things where the idea I had, I pitched it, being like. Yeah, they're never going to let me do this. <laughs> they're never going to let me do this. Um, but it was something that I had always wanted to do, which was tell the kind of origins of Choose Goose and uh, make it rhyming couplets the whole time. It's really tragic. <laughs> it's really sad. <laughs> but that's kind of like, I love that. I, I love when you take a goofy character and uh, like people take them as a joke at first and then, you know, like Dexter. Uh, give them a oh, really God, tragic Dexter, I can't I can't deal with Dexter because it's too sad it's so sad it makes me weep but uh, it, it so works for folks who are like what the hell are you talking about that's the green lantern the red lantern who's a cat the, mm -hmm. the origin story of the red lantern who's a cat is exactly as tragic as you would think it would be to make a cat a red lantern yeah An avatar of anger and rage yes um anyway <sighs> 
Well, you have your own uh, creator round series coming out uh, this summer, I believe. Um, with uh, what? what uh, tell us a little bit more about that. So it is called Render, and it's it's written in code, actual like uh, HTML code. So it's got some punctuation in there, but it's pronounced Render, um, mm -hmm. and it is. I, I call it like C-punk techno-noir, so it's, <laughs> it's cyberpunk, but it's taking place on an island setting, and that factors into a huge, huge uh, world-building way, um, and it is about this witch who is also a photographer. But photography for her is kind of a tool of divination. Um, mm. So she uses a regular camera. It just works differently for her. And she has this um, art series, this photo series she's debuting called Eyes of Death. And it is the, it's photos of the last thing people see before they died. And of course, this catches the attention of the authorities and they're like, well, what is she doing? If this is authentic, it means she's like tampering with dead bodies or, you know, or she's a fraud and she's lying to all these people. Obviously, we have to come and investigate. And they put Detective Natalie Bixel on the case and she has built her career on um, kind of busting cases of magical fraud around their city of New Delith. Um, and, you know, she's the best one for the task. But she's kind of intrigued by Emmy Ocampo, who's our main character, intrigued and attracted <laughs> to her. But uh, she kind of makes a deal with Emmy. And she's like, look, if you help me solve a case using your powers or whatever, uh, I'll drop these fraud charges and, you know, let you go. So they, they end up partnering together to solve... Um, a series of kind of grim murders around the city. Oh, interesting. I, those are lots of genre beats that I like. So I'm excited. And the artist you're partnering with, that looks really great. Who, who's the artist? Um, her name is Lenka Simakova, and she hasn't done much sequential work yet. Um, so I'm really, really excited to kind of have her make her mark um, with 10 issues like this. And it's it's looking great so far she's nailing um the really like moody and noir aspect of it but it's also so much of it is sea-based or ocean-based and has um sea life themes throughout all of it and she's getting all of that too and all of the like neon runes and and craziness of this world um it's so it just fits with her style so much Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. And that'll be from what publisher? This is coming out from uh, Lionforge. Lionforge. That's right. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. They're doing a lot of exciting things. Yeah. Yeah, they are. Well, I guess my, we're, we're coming on an hour. I, I sort of want to wrap up question. Like I, you know, I feel like one of the things that I've heard you speak about sort of is like, you know, you, you're like a, a, a published writer of young adult fiction, but you're also coming into writing comics as somebody who coming through fandom and, I think that that's something that has been complicated for 
I think like older generations to like understand, which is funny because everybody who worked at like the, this, you know, the, the Marvel bullpen of the seventies was all growing up reading the Marvel bullpen of the sixties. Mm-hmm. But I think that something to do with the way that fans have interacted with the comics they love and also like not just being as many dudes sort of through some, throw some folks for a loop, I guess. Um, I don't know if you have thoughts about like getting to write comics, uh, like, you know, for big publishers, like now after coming at it from having been active in fandom before. Um, yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about this. I, okay. So the first thing I'm going to say is that I write professional fan fiction. If you write for a licensed property and I mean, if you're good at it or if you're doing your job then you should be a fan too and this is a form of fan fiction what we're doing the Mm -hmm. difference is is it's just much much more visible and um we get paid to do it and it it occupies the same area of my brain um with not even the same sort of restraints that you would think I would have actually writing for um, properties that I used to write X-Men fan fiction for. Um, it's it's amazing and ex- exhilarating, and I feel like I'm getting away with something. It, <laughs> it It's so... I sort of maintain this feeling of like, yeah, bro, I don't know how I got here either, but it's great, and... Um, I guess you would call that imposter syndrome, but I'm going to kind of keep running with it as much as I can. But I'm also, once I learned that I, that it helps me and that I wouldn't suffer consequences from being like a visible fangirl online and just being fans of the characters that I'm writing, um, because there was like for the first year after I started writing for Marvel, I, um, didn't talk about characters the way that I do now where I'm just sort of like shit posting. Um, Mm -hmm. because even though that's what I'm accustomed to, I thought it was going to be unprofessional for me because I didn't see other, um, writers being that messy on Twitter or anything like that. And, but eventually, I don't know. I just had too much earnest, like affection and love. And I, I really missed having these conversations. I I missed being a part of the fandom. Um, I started doing it again, and then I was encouraged recklessly by by other fans. So now I just shitpost about these characters in front of my editors, and it's fine. They don't care. (laughs) I was worried about a lot of things Mm -hmm. going into writing comics professionally before learning that like oh i didn't need to be worried about that i mean there's generations of writers by which i mean people who are like 10 years older than you basically who are saying like if you do this you will not get hired and you've just like broken all that logic yeah because it's it's not true at all like the the difference is you i don't i don't read fan fiction as much as i used to because I, to me, that feels more like trespassing because what if these people want to take this story someday and 
pitch it. Like it's, it's not okay for me to, Mm. um, participate that way. But I wrote X-Men fan fiction for the explain the X-Men, um, holiday fan fiction exchange as recently as last week. Um, Mm. and to me, like it felt so special to be able to write, you know, custom content for one of Ileana Rasputin's biggest fans to give them 10 pages of Ileana and Kitty fan fiction for Christmas. Like, it it felt really special to me to be able to do that. And it's something that I know I would never pitch and it would never get published. Um, and, And it's something that they knew coming from me, like me writing it in this way, would also automatically mean that it would then never get pitched or, or published but that's just because it's it's like sweet lesbian holiday fluff and we know that Merle is not close to publishing that yet we're working on it um but it, it still doesn't mean that I can't write it in the meantime that I can't just do it and and talk about these things online and be a fangirl and say all the x-men are gay on like the flame con X-Men panel that I was on because it's the appropriate context for me to be doing that in. And it's also important to me um, to keep these conversations going and to not let queer fans feel like they aren't being listened to and they aren't being seen because like, this is the biggest difference between me coming from the fandom and somebody else um, Mm -hmm. because I know what it's like to read these comics for years and not see yourself represented or see iterations of womanhood that make you feel so uncomfortable and undermined and like this is what I have in my head and I know I have a position to do something different and and to be the change that I've always wanted to see, you know, and yeah, I get a lot of bravado and a lot of backbone from the fandom. I, I don't, I mean, mm-hmm. it, I mean, that's, that's just basically it. Like I don't make a move without knowing exactly how it's going to land. Hmm. You mean among the fans? Like, among the fans. Yeah, yeah. Among the fans. That's, I mean, it's so interesting because like to me, it almost feels like we're more likely to have a character an existing, I should say, an existing character be announced as being queer if there's been no fan discourse or headcanons or conversation around it than if it's a character who we all are like, this is the most obvious coding in the history of mankind. Like, that's just generally feels like how things have been. Um, there's exceptions. You know, I, I, I you know, the, I always point to the example of... Um, Shatterstar and Richter being a case where like fans were saying hey this is pretty gay and then the writer was like oh yeah no that's pretty gay I'll have them be a couple good call you know that's having Mm -hmm. been um like the 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 exception to the rule because it feels like you know I'm I'm gonna uh, it seems to it feels like they're more likely to decide that a completely random x-men is lgbtq than to be like kitty pride is bisexual like this is not this is something which is said by generations of text. Chris yes. Claremont has said that was his intent 
even if it wasn't his intent, that wouldn't matter because it's there. But it was, you know, it feels almost like they'd rather, I don't know. Yeah, I, so it's it's not the writers and it's not the editors. It, it has a lot to do with um, sort of corporate standards that Marvel is um, using as guidelines now. So there's no human interference in any character getting straight washed you know what i mean it's it's all just like like how do you how do you argue with that how do you be like guys please kitty is so bi (laughs) she like look at this panel of her licking icing off another woman's finger come on this is overtly sexual um it's and i don't know and that's that's a tough one too like the kitty pride thing is one that I'm actively pained by every day <laughs> because yeah. I think she and Rachel need to be together. And there's so only much... what Chris Claremont told us. I mean, exactly, you know. exactly. And it's in Excalibur. It, it's, you can see it. Um, and also her interactions with Ileana too. You can yeah. see it on the page so many times. Um, so I talk about that a lot online because I feel like there's no way they're gonna let me write kitty ever again (laughs) so i'm at this point i'm just like okay well you know they're not gonna let me near her they're because i've made my feelings very strong um so they're not gonna want that and i might as well talk about it online because if i can keep proving again and again like look this is this is how people feel. I have collected the evidence right here. I have been talking about this for years online. I have codified it for you. Here's how it's going to land. <laughs> um, then it's still something helpful. Yeah, it's, you know, I've just, I've always wondered, like, is it more helpful for fans to be specific or for more helpful for fans to be like, we need more representation amongst existing characters. Like, you know, because it, 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 I, I've been really wrestling with that. Like, is it better for us to be like, I present with you a case file of the history of Wonder Woman? Like, or is it more productive to be like, and I'll try to focus this as DC because it's not relevant to anything you're working on. It feels like it's DC for a bit. Like, is it, is, it, is it easier to be like, we present to you this case file of Wonder Woman in addition to like, Greg Rucka saying so uh, or is it to be like just generally we think it'd be nice if there was more existing characters with high profile who were queer women you know I think I would say the latter just because um, you know like as a Marvel writer I have signed a a contract about um, intellectual property and that kind of thing so this is something I warn people a lot um, about a lot don't tell me your ideas because mm-hmm. it voids them it doesn't mean that I'll be the one who gets to tell them it means that like that's exactly why I can't use yeah. that um, because eventually like what if you say something to me about uh, you know a character that you you know you want to see this happening with them and then later it happens in the comics you'd be like oh she stole my idea. Here's where it is. So it does make sense in that way. The way that I approach these conversations is I try to stay within headcanon range where we're all just talking about the characters who 
we see as gay or bi or pan or trans. Um, and this allows me to kind of, you know, express the way that I feel about these characters, but also take the temperature and see what, what other characters people see themselves in because that's a really mm. important thing for me and um it also opens up my eyes to seeing characters as d in different ways through different lenses that I wouldn't have known about before um and that's super important to me so there's that but I think you know just urging for more representation um, in general, like there's this one person who I, I can't remember their Twitter username, but you know, like pretty consistently for weeks, they were tagging X-Men creators, um, about like, can we please have trans representation? Can we please get more trans characters? And then eventually I had done enough work to get on their radar too and get asked about this. And it's like, yes, I want exactly what you want, but me telling you what I would like to do in this regard means I won't be able to pitch it. I, I can't say my real ideas online. Yeah, yeah. But it also got Tom Taylor to answer, <laughs> like that consistent tweeting. And then me being like, yeah, you're right. Absolutely. Um, but what, what did Tom contracts. Taylor say? Well, he was just like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm working on it. <laughs> That's great. That's great. And the thing I'm, the, my, I, the thing I'm really trying to talk about in terms of that is like the value of having it be existing characters because new characters tend to just sort of vanish and yeah yeah see that's that's what i'm afraid of too like my approach to these things is i i don't know when i'm gonna get an opportunity to create a new character um and and have them be not immediately like be killed off or something so my like biggest concern is um, there needs to be a trans X-Men. There needs to be an American black X-Men. There needs to be somebody mm -hmm. whose heritage in this country comes from somebody who didn't come here willingly 200 years ago. You know what I mean? That's, yeah. that should be a very important invisible part of the X-Men. Um, and it's also, if I ever get the chance to do these things, um, because I, that's not something that I know, uh, I would want to approach it in a way like make it count and make it stick. Yeah. And I'm a new writer. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not on an ongoing title. I'm not creating characters right now. Um, I'm not in a position where I would feel comfortable doing these things yet. Um, I'm, I'm doing a lot with the, pages I do have a lot more than I ever thought was possible um but I know because of the way I'm so vocal about queer issues online and being queer that 
I'm, I'm not going to get many <laughs> opportunities to, um, like really run with that in the comics. And, and when I do see the opportunity for it, um, I, I got to make it count. I got to make it something as, as big as I can. Well, thank you so much. I think you've really provided a lot of important context for listeners, um, in terms of how we think about supporting diverse representation in comics and helping creators who, especially helping queer creators to be able to do their jobs as best they can for the sake of all of us. So thank you for that. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks for, you know, the appropriate forum to talk about these things. It does, it does seem like there's a lot of, um, a lot of misconceptions about what, what's going on behind the scenes. And I always want to be as transparent and honest as possible. Thank you. It's super refreshing and helpful. So for our listeners, uh, we, you can keep up with Leia's amazing work, certainly on Twitter, where your handle is. It is my monster is chic, C-H-I-C. You can also just and search Leah Williams and you'll find me. This is true. But yeah, she's very big on Twitter. You should definitely follow her there. Uh, your website is leahmedia.com, L-E-A-H, media.com. Uh, mm-hmm. And you have an, a great Tumblr, which I am following, L-O-P-P-E-T-T.tumblr.com. Mm-hmm. And um, you should go and pick up the new Deja Thoris and, and um, Aunt, uh, my brain has just fallen out my ear, <laughs> the new Barbarella <laughs> Deja Thoris uh, comic series. Now that you can get it, it's very, very exciting. Yeah, the so- first issue comes out January 9th, and I'm super excited about it. Woohoo. Well, thank you again. And for our listeners, uh, we will be having more interviews coming up soon uh, and also some coverage of The Punisher. So join us for that. And as we'd like to say on this show, keep it geeky. <laughs>